If you would, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and also if you want to look along in your books, we are on lesson number 33 entitled Influence and Illumination. No, that's where I wanted it to be. All right, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And why don't we go ahead and just read those. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This little section, by the way, is known as the similitudes. The similitudes. We've looked at the beatitudes, and verses 13 to 16 talk about the similitudes. Jesus says, Ye are the salt of this earth, of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of man, men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You'll have to excuse me. If you notice, I don't have glasses anymore. Did you notice that? I have contact lenses, and one sees close and one sees far, and so I'm still learning how to adjust to them. And when I looked down at my Bible, I couldn't see like I wanted to, so it's really interesting, but I'm very thankful for them. I'm enjoying them, not having to search for my glasses all the time. All right, we have concluded the first section of our Sermon on the Mount called Road to Happiness or Highway to Happiness, which was a study of Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12 on the eight Beatitudes, and I hope that you found that to be a very enlightening and a very convicting study. I certainly did. Now, in those divine paradoxes, we learned of the characteristics of kingdom citizens, or in other words, Christians. A true Christian will be, to some degree or another, poor in spirit. In other words, he will be humble, selfless. He will understand his spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord God. He will also be mournful over his sin. He will be meek. He will be humble. He will be submissive to the Lord. He will hunger and thirst after uh, after righteousness, and he will find satisfaction. He will be merciful, sympathetic, sympathetic to others, knowing uh, how merciful the Lord has been in his life in forgiving him. And he will also be pure in heart. He will set his heart and mind apart to be holy as God is holy. He will desire to be a peacemaker, not only attempting to have peace with his fellow man as much as is possible without you know, compromising his morals and truth, but he also will seek to be a peacemaker in being a soul winner and bringing others to make their peace with God. Of course, then, the one who is living such a beatific life before others is going to be going to find that he is persecuted. That's what you discussed in your groups today, that he will be persecuted by those who also persecuted the prophets and persecuted the Lord Jesus himself. Yet he will be able to rejoice even in his persecution because he knows it is due to his identification with the Lord Jesus. And that really is a great compliment, isn't it? And he will know that it is only temporary. Whatever he suffers down here for righteousness' sake is only temporary, that eventually what he will gain in heaven will be worth the suffering for the sake of righteousness that he suffered down here on earth. Now, with this lesson which is entitled, as I said, Influence and Illumination, or Salt and Light, we move to the second main division of our general outline, which you find in the beginning of your book, too. I think I've got it. Yeah, 
I do have it up there somewhere after I um, dedicated the book to Terry Doby, is you'll find the general outline. We are now on part two, responsibility to the world. Having seen what a Christian is in the Beatitudes, the Lord went on to, to speak about how we should function. We've seen what we are, and now we're going to see how we should function. In what is called the similitudes, the Lord Jesus used two metaphors from everyday life, everyday common things, in order to describe the Christian's responsibility to the world. We will be learning that the believer is to be as important in this world as the two common elements of what? Salt and light. First of all, in verse 13, we will discuss being like salt so that we might influence this corrupt world. And then in verses 14 to 16, we're going to talk about being like light so that we might illuminate this sin-darkened, sin-cursed world in which we live. We need to understand that we, although we are not of this world, our citizenship is in heaven, we are not of this world and we are not to be like this world, we're not to be worldly, yet we are still in this world. Anybody in here not in this world? <laughs> we're not of the world, but we are in the world, and the Lord Jesus holds us accountable as his representatives to be responsible to this world. We're not to reflect the world. We're not to be worldly. We're not to reflect the world, but we are called to influence and illuminate it with, of course, the truth of the gospel message. All right, so let's begin by looking at our influence, uh, salt for a corrupt world. What I want to point out, first of all, is when we look at the, Lord, the Lord's first two sentences for each of these similitudes, ye are the salt of the earth and ye are the light of the world, you may not notice this, but in the original Greek, the word ye is given in the plural. One grain of salt has rather a limited influence, just one little tiny grain. But collectively, the whole church scattered across the earth has a great influence. So he's saying, ye all, all of you who are in the, the body of Christ, ye all are the salt of the earth. Ye all, <laughs> real southern, ye all, <laughs> ye all, <laughs> what is that, King James Southern, uh, are the light of the world. <clears throat> So you see the same thing is true with light. One little ray of light doesn't have, it has an influence, but it has a limited influence. But when you put all those rays of light together, you create a great light in a dark world. The other thing about the Lord's use of that pronoun ye, besides the fact that it's plural, is that it is emphatic. So that the true meaning of what he said is you and only you, or I should say you all and only you all are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the light of the world. The corruption and the darkness of this world would not and could not be influenced um, without God's people. We're, we're its only solution. We are its only answer. So, so there's really some irony here. If you notice, what, you, what did you just discuss in your groups? Being persecuted? The irony is, and see, this just falls right on the heels of that last beatitude about being persecuted. The irony is seen in the progression of the persecution beatitude. <clears throat> 
to these two similitudes, and that, that irony is that the very people who are despised and hated and persecuted by this world are, in fact, its only hope. We and we alone are the salt for this world. We and we alone are the light for this world. We alone carry the one true message of hope, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ and him alone. God's only witnesses are those who are truly his children. Of course, the world can learn of him through the reading of his holy word, the scripture. They can learn of him by reading his word. But as far as observation, the only other way they have of knowing him is by observing those of us who belong to him. So that's rather ironic, isn't it? They persecute us, and yes, yet we are their only hope. The message that we have is the only truth. All right, let's talk a little bit about the function of salt and look for a minute at some past history about salt. It's interesting to find that the first time the word salt ever appears in all ancient literature is in the Bible, and it is found in Job 6.6. 6. In the ancient Greek, as you see I have up here, this is not any longer the word for salt, but it used to be in Greek the word for salt was the word theon, which is interesting because you've heard of theos or theology. Theon is actually the word for God or a divinity. So it tells you what they thought of salt, doesn't it? Um, in fact, the Romans considered it so important that it was used to pay the Roman soldiers. They were paid in salt. And so the word salary actually comes, it's a, uh, the word salary is a Latin-based word, salarium, and it comes from the word salt. Isn't that interesting? So when you get paid a salary, it, it comes from the word salt. <clears throat> In days of antiquity, it was also a sign of friendship to eat salt with someone. Also, eating salt with someone was done in order to authenticate an agreement or a covenant between two parties. And we find this in such places as 2 Chronicles 13.5, where God made a covenant of salt with King David. An everlasting covenant in Numbers 18.19 is referred to as a covenant of salt. Furthermore, the sacrificial offerings were to be offered with salt according to the Mosaic law. You can read about that in Leviticus 2.13. The Jewish people also had a custom of rubbing their infant newborn babies down with salt. They rubbed them with salt <clears throat> because it was supposed to ensure their good health. Now, another important use of salt prior to the days of ice houses and, and refrigerators was that it was used as a preservative, exactly. It's a known fact that salt helps to decay the corruption and the putrefaction of meat and certain other foods. So when the Lord Jesus told that those who were listening to his Sermon on the Mount, he told that crowd, whether they, you know, some of them might have been Jewish, some of them might have been Greek, some of them might have been Roman, whatever their background was, when he told them that they were to function as salt to this world, they all understood that their function was to be something very, very important because everyone knew how important salt was, especially back in those days. <clears throat> we know also, of course, that salt is a spice. It is a condiment. And it adds flavor to food. We Christians, therefore, are to add some flavor to this old blah world, <laughs> this insipid world in which we live. We are to the world as salt is to food. 
we, the savor of salt represents the Christian's power by way of both the love of Jesus Christ, which is in our hearts, and the righteousness of Christ, which pervades our lives. <clears throat> Christ's love and his righteousness through his followers needs to flow out of us onto others, just as salt pours out of a salt shaker onto the food. It is... <clears throat> Got something stuck in my throat. Could I? <clears throat> it is by diffusing ourselves into the lives of others and penetrating them with our love and our message of hope and our righteous lifestyles that people are reached in salvation. <clears throat> we have to have contact and we have to have association with the unsaved in order to do this, don't we? I know that's a big problem in my life because everybody I seem to associate with is already a Christian. Sometimes I've thought about I need to go out and get a job so at least I have some association with, with um, non-Christians. But then I got to thinking, the last couple of weeks I've had some association. You know, the Lord brings people across your path, even if you are a stay-at-home mom. Uh, when I was up, we were waiting for our, our daughter to deliver our grandchild. There was a, um, a girl in the waiting room, and she was just bawling her eyes out. I mean, I just sobbing, the, the greatest sobs you can imagine. Her heart was broken. And she looked like she was about 18 or 19. Of course, everybody looks young to me, the older I get. <laughs> but uh, I think she was pretty young. And her young husband was standing, thank you so much. He was standing there, just looked like he didn't know what to do. He just was kind of helpless. <laughs> he just kept saying, it'll be all right, honey. But he just didn't. And I thought, well, nobody, I couldn't believe the nurses and everybody was just walking right by her. And she was sobbing her eyes out. So I went over to her and I said, can I, can I be a comfort to you? And she just like latched on me and I hugged her. You know, it could be salt in a situation like that. She didn't have her mom around. Her baby had just been born three days before, and the cord had been wrapped around his neck. And um, <clears throat> he was having problems, and they were changing hospitals. And she got to this new hospital before he did, and they had just gotten a call that the ambulance was going to be three hours late. And, of course, she was upset. And so I had word of prayer with both of them, and... You know, I thought, well, I can be salt and I can be light, you know. And then there was another girl that <clears throat> I went to get my nails done. <laughs> this is a habit I've gotten into ever since the last wedding. I just love getting my nails done. <laughs> so while I was up there in Virginia Beach, I went to get my nails done, and the um, Vietnamese girl who did my nails just started pouring out her life to me and how many problems she had and her living boyfriend had just left her and, uh, do I believe in prayer, and you know, do I believe in dreams? And she had this giant fish in her dream that keeps jumping up and eating her. And I said, <laughs> and I mean, she was, whew, she was a little kooky, but <laughs> I, I tried to talk to her as much as I could, you know, give her the gospel. But when I got home, she kept staying on my mind, and I had gotten her little business card, and so I wrote her a letter, and I sent her a gospel track, and I told her Jesus loved her, and I got thinking, you know, I can be so. I do know some unsaved people. I can go out there, the grocery boy the, at the store. We need to remember always, always, no matter where we are, the UPS man that comes to your house, FedEx person, you can be salt and light to everybody. And we should be salt and light. And how did I get on that? I don't know. What was I talking about? <laughs> oh, we're to. All right. We have to flow out. And I was convicted because I don't feel like I flow out very much except to other Christians. So it's by diffusing ourselves into other lives, others' lives and penetrating them with our love and our message of hope that we reach people. <clears throat> and we do have to have contact to do that. Of course, now too much salt 
uh, in food, what does that do? Too much salt makes the food yucky. I mean, all you want to do is spit it out. Yeah, it's just, it spoils it. And so I thought about that, too. If you put a, too much of ourselves into something, makes it yucky. If you get too much of somebody, they turn you off. So we have to be, it just has to be that right balance. Um, it takes just the right amount. And we, it wouldn't hurt for us to give a little pepper to this world either. <laughs> it would be a little salt and pepper, because this world needs some additional pep to it. So I ask you, are you a salt and pepper Christian? Give this world some, uh, some, some salt. We'll talk about it. Of course, we're supposed to prevent putrefaction, but we're also to give, make this world thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wouldn't hurt for us to give it a little zest and make it a little peppy. I believe that Christians should stand out above the crowd, don't you? Don't you think that we should be excellent no matter what we do? That we should always stand out, whether it's, you know, being the most, the, the best mother that we can possibly be, the best wife, the most kind person, the most loving, the most hardworking. I believe in excellence in, for Christ, in ministry and in everyday life. We should be the most conscientious the most determined, the most dedicated, the most disciplined, the most content, the most joyful of all people and professions. Christians, I believe, should not be known for sloppy agape. I, you know, I don't think that we have any a, a testimony when we're sloppy about our Christianity. Even in our appearance, everything we, sh- we do, we should think of being salt and light. We should stand out above the crowd so people are drawn to us because of our, our testimony for Christ. Do you agree with me on that? Okay. All right, and also we're to promote purity. Here's, here's all the different things I'm talking about here. Provides savor, and now we're on number C, provokes uh, purity. In the ancient world, salt, as we've already talked about, had a religious significance to it in, in the fact that it was to be used... Um, in making a covenant. God used it in making covenants, and it was used in the sacrificial all offerings, and it was also, as we saw, the Greek word for divinity or God. Salt was a symbol of purity. The prophet Elisha, on one occasion, threw salt into a spring in order to purify its waters. German tribes used to uh, fight for possession of salt springs because they believed such regions were sacred and pure, so the Germans would fight over them. It's also true, as scientists can testify, that salt is the vital element that purifies our blood and that also purifies the waters of this world. Did you know that there are six million cubic miles of salt? That's a lot of salt. In the oceans of this world, six million cubic miles of salt. Doctors often tell their patients with sore throats that they should do what? (laughs) Go home and gargle with some salt water so that it will cleanse and purify their throats. A mild salt water solution inhaled into the nostrils also is very helpful, isn't it? it? It opens up the nasal passages, making breathing easier. The Christian is to be like salt in that he is to be a cleansing agent to this ailing word. The message that we are to take to the world is, after all, a cure, isn't it? For spiritual health. We have the cure for spiritual health. The Old Testament offerings, as I mentioned, 
were to be offered with salt in order to... Why did they do that? Why did God tell them to put salt on the offerings? Because the salt symbolized purity. That's what that was, was to stress purity. Even the color of salt. What, what color is salt? White. Even the color white symbolizes purity. The Christian is to be, remember, we learned about this in the Beatitudes, he is to be pure in heart. And I can't think of anything that would better symbolize purity of heart than salt. We are to, and, and light for that matter, pure heart, salt, and light. I mean, perfect elements from nature that the Lord Jesus used in speaking of Christians. So we're to be pure in heart. And this will enable us to then be useful as salt to lead others to the Holy Spirit's purifying work in the new birth. Just as a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump is a picture of how evil can permeate and destroy an individual or a ministry, we have the opposite picture here with salt. It takes just a pinch of salt to give flavor to an entire meal. My daughter came home last night from work and she was starving to death. And uh, I had some spaghetti going on the, on the stovetop, and she couldn't wait. And so she came over with a big spoon and took some out. She said, something's missing, Mom. And it was so funny because I had forgotten to put the salt in. <laughs> and I thought it was a perfect illustration for tomorrow. But as soon as I put the salt in, she said, oh, now it's right. So it doesn't take a whole lot of salt to give something uh, that just that little needed flavor. All right, it also, salt also... Penetrate. Well, there's my picture. It penetrates. Salt penetrates with a sting. If you've ever been in, swimming in the ocean and maybe you forgot about some cut that you had on your body or some open wound, immediately you were reminded of it, weren't you? Because salt stings. It, it stings an open wound. Christians who are living righteous lives and who are sharing the truths of, truths of God's word with others are re really pouring salt into open wounds, the open wounds of this world's sins. It stings people, in other words, to have us around sometimes. And this is why we are not very popular with this world and why it persecutes us. <clears throat> Notice that Jesus did not use the metaphor of sugar, did he? He didn't say that we are to be the sugar of this world. <clears throat> Although we're certainly to, in that element, I mean, we certainly are to sweeten up this world. And knowing Christians has certainly sweetened up my world, knowing all of you. I mean, I, that's the number one thing I think of when I think of a lot of you is sweet. But he didn't tell us that we are to be the sugar of the world um, when it comes to our responsibility to this world. We are not here uh, to sweeten this world. We were not saved to sweeten it nor are we to sugarcoat. Now, we do, sort of. We do definitely sweeten it, but that's not our responsibility. Um, nor are we to sugarcoat the truth of God's word, as many liberals would have us to believe. Rather, the Lord tells us that we are to be the salt of this earth. The gospel message stings. It stings the world because it points at sin. Now, sugar would probably try to cover up that sin. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Now, that's... Well, that's good, too. I mean, we could throw a little sugar in there while we're giving <laughs> But basically, the gospel message stings because you can't talk about salvation without pointing at sin. And it pricks the conscience, and it makes people just plain uncomfortable. I saw this 
Sunday morning in church, I was watching a um, an older couple that came to our church for the first time and didn't have a Bible, and I knew they just, but from the way they looked, I knew they had never probably been in that kind of an environment before. And during the prayer and invitation time, I was peeking, um, and they, they were just looking around, and they just like were, what is going on? <laughs> and I saw they were so uncomfortable that they really just couldn't wait to, to get out of that church, <laughs> our church, <laughs> because the gospel makes people just plain uncomfortable, and that is why many people would prefer to keep their distance from a salty Christian. Also, salt provokes thirst. Salt tablets are actually given to athletes and outdoor workers who perspire a great deal, and the reason for that is because it increases their, their thirst. That seems weird, doesn't it? If they're already perspiring, why would you give them something that increases their thirst? And that's because you want them to drink more water. They, uh, they need to drink large quantities of water in order to prevent dehydration, which can lead to death. So salt provokes thirst. When Christians live out the beatific virtues before those without Christ, we cause them to be more acutely aware of the deep inner thirst of their parched souls. Some like that. Some like that. They want, they want, to, um, they want to know how parched their souls are and thirst for righteousness, and they come to Christ through the gospel message, but others do not like that. And the only thing, you know... You cannot force a horse, force a horse, <laughs> to drink water, can you? You can lead him right up to the edge of the, of the lake or pond or the water trough, but you cannot force him to drink. However, what can we do? You can give him a salt tablet and make him thirsty so that he will want to drink. You and I should attempt to live so righteously before others that they thirst for what we have. Then, when they are ready to drink, although we ourselves cannot quench their thirst, I mean, I have nothing in and of myself to quench somebody's thirst, but I can point them to the one who can indeed quench their thirst, and that one is the Lord Jesus, who said, If any man thirst, let him come where? Unto me and drink. All right. Let's move quickly here. And another function of salt is not only does it provide savor and promote purity and penetrate with a sting and provoke thirst but it prevents putrefaction the primary functional characteristic of salt that Jesus was probably emphasizing in this similitude is that of preservation salt as I mentioned earlier was widely used as a necessity to delay the rapid corruption and decay of meat or fish and we, too, are to function as a preservative element in this world. God keeps us in this world after we are saved so that we might restrain its total decay. You know, we actually prevent this world from putrefying. Have you ever thought of yourself as, as that? But we do. We prevent this world from um, being way worse than it already is. We are to be rubbed into the rotting flesh and wounds of this decaying world so that we might help to delay its total putrefaction. If it was not for the preservative quality of Christians, this world would see a great deal more corruption than it already sees now. 
And that's really hard to believe, isn't it? You turn on the, the news at night, and it's really hard to think of the world being any worse than it is. But I can stand very strongly on that statement because of the fact that the Word of God tells us when we are removed from this world, when the church and the Holy Spirit are taken out of this world at the time of the rapture of the church, it will only take this world seven years uh, before it just about would annihilate itself without the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming. So we actually help to prevent this world from degenerating even faster than it is already doing. This world, as evil and as wrapped in gloom as it was in the Lord's day, is definitely worse today. It is worse. Evil, well, and that's biblical because we know that the Bible says evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3.13. It cannot get better. This world is not evolving and getting better and better because there is no inherent goodness in this world upon which to build. So year after year, the evil system of this world accumulates an ever-deepening darkness. It gets worse and worse. Some of the horrible crimes you hear about, they just boggle my mind what people are doing to one another. And all this is happening while men at the same time claim that they are actually climbing to higher evolutionary levels. Uh, mankind has increased, we know, in his knowledge, scientifically, and that's only because he builds on the knowledge of past generations, but he's increased in his knowledge scientifically, medically, historically, technologically, and many other ways. But these advancements have not affected his basic nature one single bit. <laughs> his knowledge may have advanced in some ways, but he has not improved his society at all. His comforts may be greater, but his morals have only progressed downward. His confidence may have increased, but his peace of mind has diminished. He may have many accomplishments under his belt, but his sense of purpose and meaning has all but been obliterated. Rather than improving the ethical and moral and mental and spiritual quality of his life, all of man's advancements have merely given him more ways to express and more ways to promote his own depravity, and quicker and more uh, destructively, too. He has merely invented greater ways to corrupt and destroy himself. You see, all of men's knowledge apart from the foundational truths of the Word of God, has no bearing whatsoever on his inner man. His knowledge does not slow down his corruption. It actually intensifies it and gives him more excuses to defend it. We have gone from war to greater war. We've gone from crime to even greater crime, from immorality to even greater immorality, from perversion to even greater perversion. The spiral is not at all upward, as your professors in the universities would tell us. For example, they say that we have gone up the evolutionary scale, and it's time for us to, to drop off marriage. You know, marriage is it's an ancient thing, and we need to, it's time to drop it off and just forget it. Just like one day, one day we dropped off our tails, now we need to drop off the institution of marriage. <laughs> But the spiral is not at all upward. It's downward at an ever-increasing rate. 
sadly, I hate to bring this up, but Christendom in general, as a whole, Christendom has been more influenced by the world in the past few generations than the world has been influenced by it. Actually, remember the famous saying of a man named John Don? John Don? What did he say? No man is an island unto himself. And whether we realize it or not, that's true. Our lives, consciously or unconsciously, affect other people. You know, the, I couldn't think of his name, but the James Stewart character in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Don't you just love that movie? I love that movie. If you haven't seen it, I've got the video. It's well worth seeing. It's been around a long time. But the James Stewart character is a real good example of this truth, that no man is an island unto himself. Because he gets the opportunity to see what life around him would have been like for others if he had never existed. And he's shocked to find the difference that his one life had upon those he loved and upon his whole community. You know, in other words, he sees what his wife's life would have been like without him, what his brother's life would have been like, what his children's lives, of course they wouldn't have existed, but you know, and he sees what his whole community would have been like without his one influence. And he's shocked at the impact that he had on all those different people. Years ago, a man named Elihu Burritt wrote these words. He said, quote, no human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness, not only of the present, but of every subsequent, subsequent age of humanity. No one can detach himself from this connection. Everywhere his presence or his absence will be felt. Everywhere he will have companions who will be better or worse because of him. It is an old saying and one of the fearful and fathomless statements of import that we are forming characters for eternity. Forming characters? Whose? Our own or others? His answer, both. And in that momentous fact lies the peril and responsibility of our existence. Who is sufficient for the thought? Thousands of my fellow beings will yearly enter eternity with characters differing from those they would have carried had I never lived. End of quote. That's a serious thought, isn't it? Not one person in this room is isolated from having an impact on other people. Consciously or unconsciously, you are affecting lives for all of eternity. And what do you need to be? Salt and light. This is exactly what Jesus was stressing to his own people in the similitudes. The influence that we are to have on the world for God and for good. Now, regardless of how beautiful or how expensive a salt shaker may be, and I don't have any really fancy ones, but... I have some silly ones. I have some that are frogs, and I have some that are angels, and you know how they make salt and pepper shakers and everything nowadays. Oh, I have some rooster salt and pepper shakers. But no matter how expensive or how beautiful or how creative a salt shaker may be, it's totally useless if it never dispenses any salt. Now, I have some like that. I have some that are totally useless because I never bother to put salt in them. 
So in whose insipid, bland, thirsty, decaying life are you dispensing your salt? What about your local assembly? What about your local church? Is it merely a nice, attractive, ecclesiastical salt shaker made up of a number of individual grains of salt who keep each other cozy, but which never shakes its saltiness out onto the decadent world around it? You know, notice that Jesus did not say that we are to be the salt of the church, did he? He said we are to be the salt of the earth. And what does that tell you about Christians who believe in isolationism from society, such as the Essenes? Remember, they're the ones that went and hid themselves near the Dead Sea. Uh, What does this tell you about monasticism, monks, people that just keep themselves totally isolated? What does it tell you about the importance of missions? How many missions and how many missionaries does your church support? Is it shaking its salt all over the world, or is it just collected together in its little salt shaker? The failure of salt is what we talk about next. That's what the Lord warned us of in um, the latter part of verse 13, where he says, But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. We're right here looking at the failure of salt. In the latter half of this verse, Jesus said that when salt loses its savor, what is it good for? Nothing. It's really good for nothing but to be cast out and walked on. The effectiveness of salt is conditional then upon its retaining its saltiness. Now, even though chemically speaking, salt cannot break down. It cannot break down because it's sodium chloride and it always remains sodium chloride, um, chemically speaking, yet it can lose its appealing flavor when it is contaminated with other minerals such as gypsum. Contaminated salt will become flat and even disgusting when it's mixed with dirt and when it's mixed with other impurities. Salt must be pure in order to be flavorful and to work effectively as a preservative against decay. When impure salt would find its way into a Jewish home, the people were very careful not to throw it out into their fields because it would kill the crops and it would prevent you know, new crops from coming out. They wouldn't put it in the garden. Um, instead, what would they do with that salt? They would take that contaminated, impure salt and they would throw it out on the road. They would dump it on the road. And then eventually the heels of those people who would travel up and down the road would grind it back out of sight, you know, down into the dirt of the earth. It's, I, I found it interesting to learn this week as I was studying that yet even today in the Middle East, this is a very common thing that they do. It's, common, it's also common for ovens in the Middle East to have a base of tile at the bottom of the oven, they have tile, and then under the tile, they have a layer of salt. The salt in the oven, and I don't have this in your notes because I just found it out, but the salt actually helps to increase and maintain the heat in that oven. However, when the salt loses its potency, because you know, as you cook things in the oven, you get little drippings and pretty soon the salt gets contaminated. So when it loses its potency, it's thrown out yet today, into the streets where pedestrians tread it into the ground. 
So in yet another sense, then, we learn that uh, being salty includes the idea, idea of maintaining heat. And I didn't have that in your notes, so put that down if you want to jot that down. We also help to maintain heat. The cast-out salt had lost its savor, and it had lost its ability to maintain heat. And therefore, we could say that this useless salt represented the lack of spiritual influence of Israel's religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the ineffectiveness of their religion on Jewish society. It also represents, this savorless salt, also represents those who profess Christ, but whose lives have become blah, bland, lukewarm, and ineffective. You know, just like the Lord Jesus said that savorless salt is good for nothing to but be cast out, what did he say similarly to those who are lukewarm in the book of Revelation? He said that, yeah, he would spew them out of his mouth. We need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul said this, he said, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. None of us want to be spit out. None of us want to be cast out, do we? So we need to constantly keep our bodies under subjection. We need to, be, we need to maintain our saltiness. We cannot give to others what we ourselves do not have. We cannot impart flavor and heat to others if we don't have either one of those things in our own lives. We cannot make our influence for the Lord Jesus known if they see in us hypocrisy or lukewarmness or skepticism or compromise or, or blandness. It's only really in proportion to our own devotion and our own fervency for Christ and his truth and our obedience to him that we exert um, influence on others. It is also only really in proportion to the love and grace of God that we display to the world that we are effective in our influence on other people. Without love, we make of no effect the word of God. That's one of the main things that makes our lives salty is the love of Christ that flows out from us. Remember what the Apostle Paul also said in, in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13? He said, though I speak with the tongue of angels, and though I do this, and though I do that, uh, though I have all faith, though I could remove mountains and have not, what? Love, charity, love, I am nothing. He said, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. If we are to function responsibly in this world and in a manner which is pleasing to God, we must carefully, diligently work at keeping ourselves uncontaminated with the filth and the impurities and the allurements of this world. We are not to be conformed to this world. Compromised, contaminated salt provides no flavor, and it provides it provokes no thirst, but it is actually sickening. It's spewed out of the mouth. Dirty salt does not sting, nor does it help to heal an open wound. You know, when you go swimming in the ocean and it stings your cut, it also is helping to heal it, isn't it? 
The salt helps to heal that open wound, but dirty salt doesn't heal. It only infects it. Impure salt does not promote purity in those things into which it is placed, and it loses its effectiveness in preventing decay and putrefaction. In other words, being contaminated by the world makes a Christian useless and fruitless for God. We simply cannot model purity in this world if we ourselves have compromised our own purity with some secret sin or with some worldly attachment to which we cling. We cannot provoke thirst for godly righteousness when we ourselves have lost our own thirst for godly righteousness. On another occasion, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is in Mark 9.50, the Lord Jesus said, to his disciples, he said, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye season it? And then he said, Have salt in yourselves. Salt is a remedy for blah spaghetti. Or salt is a remedy for flavorless food, right? But there is no remedy for flavorless salt. There isn't any. So he, that's why Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. We have salt in ourselves when we are seasoned with the gospel and when we are seasoned with love, Christ's love, unconditional agape love, and when we are seasoned with grace. And when it says, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, when we are uh, the savor of the knowledge of Christ, and when our conversation is seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, as it says in Colossians 4, 6. That's how we are salty through all of those things. Now, we're going to run out of time if we don't move quickly on to the second similitude, which is illumination, light for a confused world. And for this, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 16. I won't reread them for time's sake. Um, in Matthew 5:14, the Lord Jesus said that believers are the light of the world. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out what an incredible statement this was for the very Son of God to be saying, to remember now his original listeners. It's an incredible statement for him to be saying to those poor, insignificant, simple people to whom he spoke the sermon. From the world's standpoint, that crowd around him and those fishermen, disciple apostles, they were nobodies. They were absolutely nothing as far as the world was concerned. But Jesus said to them, ye, and remember it's exclusive, ye and ye alone are the light of the world. Now this, Dr. Jones says, is, quote, one of those statements with which we should all, which should always have the effect upon us of making us lift up our heads, causing us to realize once more what a remarkable thing it is to be a Christian, end of quote. On the other hand, he then went on to say, quote, the danger always is that we may read a statement like this and think about somebody else. We may think about the first Christians or the apostles or Christian people in general. But it is ourselves to whom it refers if we truly claim to be Christian, end of quote. You know, if you think about this, the greatest thinkers that this world has ever provided, the greatest thinkers, the greatest scientists, the greatest writers, the greatest philosophers of this world, 
who knew not the Lord Jesus Christ had less enlightenment put together. If you put all of them together, they had less enlightenment than one ordinary born-again Christian who may never have even read a single book on philosophy or science. And this is just, again, one of, the, one of those great paradoxes of truth. But it is true. It really is true. Um, it's another one of the great paradoxes of truth, which is revealed for us in the scripture, that the world, in all of its supposed wisdom, cannot come to the basic, all-important truth about God and about Jesus Christ. And the one thing that seems to the world to be the most foolish the most ridiculous, which is the preaching of the cross, is, in fact, the pure wisdom and enlightenment of God. That's a great paradox, isn't it? Where do we get the light with which we are to illuminate this dark, evil, confused world? Well, obviously, the source of light is God himself. It says in 1 John 1, 5, this, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all in God. God the Father is light. We also know, of course, that God the Son is a, our source of light. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world in John eight twelve, We believers have received God's light through Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Now, some great Bible teachers have said that um, the Christian is actually like the moon, and um, that is because we reflect the light of the sun. You know, the moon has no light in and of itself, but it reflects the light of the sun, and the sun, of course, pictures Jesus Christ. And that's a good analogy. Um, so, in other words, the Christian is is a reflected light. We are the reflected light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good analogy. It's a great analogy, really. But it really doesn't go far enough. It is true in the sense that the light does not originate in us. But it is not true in the sense that the moon never does have any light of its own. Whereas we do, in fact, become ourselves light. Christ's light indwells us and shines out from us. We have become his light transmitters to this world. It says in Ephesians 5.8, look at that verse. Here's what it says. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now, ye are, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Lord's promise to us, in John 8, 12, is that he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Believers receive God's light, Christ's light, when they identify with him, with the Lord, in his death and burial and resurrection and become new creatures in Christ. We actually, according to 2 Peter 2, 4, we become partakers of the divine nature. And that is truly incredible when you think about that. If we were to state the function of light in one simple word, it would be the word illumination. We are to shake, to, to uh, well, we're to shake. That's, I wrote a little poem at the end of the lesson. We're to shake 
because we're to be like salt, and we're to shine because we're to be like light. So we're to shake and to shine. We are to um, influence and illuminate this dark world of confusion. But to be more specific, let's look at three functions of light. It exposes the darkness, it explains the darkness, and it enlightens from the darkness. We'll go through these really quickly here, I hope. Probably the main thing that we think of with light is that it exposes that which was once hidden in darkness. This world is shrouded in darkness, and it is ruled by who? The, the, prince, of, the prince of darkness, Satan, who usurped man's dominion over this world when he caused man to sin as we talked about last week. Christ's coming, his first coming, and the gospel message have exposed the darkness of men's sinful lifestyles and have provided a way for man to come out from the darkness, out from the, dark, the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. We who carry God's message of salvation to this world uh, for the Lord are to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse Nation, Philippians 2.15. So we expose the darkness. We also explain the darkness. Notice that the Lord's words in verse 16, he said, Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That is not optional. What he said there is not optional. It is given in the form of a command. Let your light so shine. So in other words, he says, If you are light... If my presence indwells you, and you are a child of the light, and the light is to shine out, if you are a light, you are to shine. The good works in the Greek, where he says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works, it's not the usual Greek word, agathos, for good works, but it's the word kalos, which means uh, not only is it good, are, are our works to be good in quality, but they are to be good in beauty and in attractiveness. So the Lord not only wants his followers to shine through quality works for him, but through beautiful and attractive works, works that really get people's attention because they're works that shine in compassion and shine in love, works that, that embody Christ's love in them. You know, works that really get people's attention. That's what he's saying. Let them see your, your compassionate, quality, shining good works. As the Lord's light transmitters in this world, we are not only to expose the darkness and the sin of this world to its citizens, but we are to even go a step further and to explain to them the cause for the darkness. You know, we are the only ones who know the cause for the darkness of the world. And we gain that knowledge through the word of God. We are the only ones who can explain why there are so many terrible troubles and heartaches in this world. Only Christians who are illuminated by God's inspired holy word and have the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit within them know the reason for wars and, and quarrels and crime and perversions and diseases. Only Christians who believe the truth of the scripture know and can explain uh, diseases and, and all kinds of other things that go on um, because we're the only ones who can explain and trace, you know, trace everything back to sin and to selfishness and self-desire. The problem with most men 
is that even though they have their wicked hearts exposed to truth's light when it is explained to them or when they read the scripture, which is light, and even though they may hear the explanation for their own sinful ways, many of them, most of them, still choose darkness rather than light. And why is that? Why do they choose darkness rather than light? Because their deeds are evil. It boils down to the simple fact that sinful man prefers his sin to God's righteousness. He enjoys his sin too much to want to change. And that's the bad news. However, the good news is that there are some people who do want out. There are some people who will follow the light to the one-way exit out of their spiritual darkness. And for these, we have another function. We are to enlighten from darkness. The Christian is God's instrument, like his flashlight, to light the one-way exit from darkness. Functioning as kind of a spiritual flashlight, we are to guide the lost to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and without whom no man cometh unto the Father. So have you been a spiritual flashlight lady lately? Lady? <laughs> lady, lately? <laughs> uh, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he shined in our hearts. Why? So that we can then give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to others. Light enlightens in darkness, just as guiding lights on an airport runway. The incoming pilot, especially during a storm or during the darkness of night, knows exactly where to, to direct and land his plane on, on the runway below. Why? Because they flick on all the lights for him. So he knows where to be directed and he knows where to land. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be shining lights, illuminating the darkness, so that others know both where to travel and how to make a safe landing when they get to where they're going. The failure of light, the main function, as we said, of light is to, here's where we are, so there's hope for wrapping this up very soon. We're at failure of light. The main function is to illuminate, but light also obviously does other things. It, it, it gives warmth, right, and life, really. There could be no life without light. In order to illuminate, of course, light must be visible. It cannot be, um, it cannot illuminate if it's hidden or covered up. God did not give believers light through his son so that they could become secret agent Christians, hiding the truth of his message under a bushel somewhere. We are to let our lights shine brightly as a city which is set on a hill at night. And the city I think of when I read that is Jerusalem because it is up on a hill. And for miles around, all the rural vi villages could see it sitting up there, letting its light shine forth. Having lit his lights, which initially were, you know, those first Christians and primarily his, his 12 disciples, the Lord Jesus was not just going to let... Uh, let them uh, sit under a bushel, 
by merely keeping them confined to Galilee or even just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, with regard to the salt similitude, Jesus was not going to just keep his followers together in a, in a heap, like a salt heap. They couldn't just stay huddled together in Jerusalem, but they had to be scattered grain by grain throughout the entire world in order to purify, preserve, and penetrate the world. So he was going to send them to the uttermost parts of the world where they would beam forth the light of truth through themselves and through the churches that would be established by and through them. The knowledge that is carried by those who know Christ is for the good of others. It must be com- and it must be communicated to them. You know, we're not here just to learn and and store all this knowledge in our own brains and keep it all to ourselves, are we? This whatever we're learning here, we are to communicate to others. Otherwise, you are hiding your light under a bushel. Or you're doing like the, um, the bad steward who took his talent from the Lord, and what did he do with it? He buried it in the ground. Our light, our knowledge, everything we learn is to be invested and to be invested in other people wisely. A Christian who keeps his faith in Christ a secret and tries to hide his light from others is living in disobedience to God, and he is not fulfilling his responsibility to the world. The Lord gave a command when he said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works. See your good works. Did you catch it? See your good works and glorify not yourself, <laughs> but glorify who? Glorify your Father. Our good works are not to draw attention to ourselves. Our good works are to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Remember, to whom much is given, much is required. And I don't know who has more than the Americans with the access we have to so much light and truth. We are really much more responsible. And notice that, as I pointed out, men must not only hear our talk, but they must see our talk in works so that they know that our profession is more than just that. We must not only talk our talk, but we must walk it before others so that they might see our good works. You know, 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So we're not only to have, to have sound doctrine, but we are to have holiness in our lives. And then we are salt and we are light. Now, I'll conclude with this. The really, really good news is that the, uh, I can't do three things here at once. <laughs> that one day, the darkness we do live in a dark, evil, confused, mixed-up world. But one day, the darkness will be gone forever. This is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, by the way, just a picture. One day, there will no longer be any need for the sun in the sky and uh, to light our way by day, and there will be no need for the moon to light our way by night. There will be no need for electricity because Jesus Christ, the Lamb will be the light thereof in the eternal kingdom. Do you think there will ever be night in the eternal kingdom? No. It will always be light because Jesus Christ is the light of the eternal kingdom and it will forever be bright because he will forever be there. And it's exciting to realize that we will also eternally be part of that shining light. In Matthew 13, 43, the Lord Jesus said that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
And the book of Daniel says essentially the same thing. The book of Daniel says, and they that be wise, and you see, you're wise if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're wiser than, as I said, all the philosophers and scientists and great thinkers of the world. You're wiser than any of them who don't know Christ. Daniel said, and they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they <clears throat> that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. You know, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? But you and I do more than just declare the glory of God. We actually share in the glory of God in Christ. And that, again, is something awesome to think about, isn't it? I want to close using the little prayer, uh, I mean the little poem as our, our prayer. Lord, shake on us thy savory salt till we are ready to burst. Then fill us so full with righteousness that others for you will thirst. Shine on us thy radiant light till we almost seem to glow. Help us then guide others to thee that truth they also might know. O Lord, make us salty. O Lord, make us shine. Use us, dear Jesus, for thy glory divine. O Lord, make us salty. O Lord, make us bright. May we create thirst and guide men to thy light. For we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.